0: Again, that's Exodus chapter 20. We'll be starting in verse 1 once again. You know, part of my goal in uh, reading the Ten Commandments over and over again is uh, I hope by the time we get through them this summer that we as a church have them memorized. So, um, again, if you would, read with me Exodus chapter 20 starting in verse 1. Heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Dear Lord, our God, our Father who is in heaven, Lord, we praise your name, we worship you, we glorify you, Lord, for your grace, your goodness, for who you are, Lord. God, I pray as we approach once again these ten words, these ten commandments, Lord, that you have given us, Lord, that We approach them in all humility, knowing that at every aspect of the law, the moral law, Lord, we have failed, that we have sinned, that it's only through your Son who you sent to die on the cross for our sins, your Son who lived a perfect life, who was raised on the third day. It's only through belief in Him that we find salvation, Lord. As we approach the sixth commandment, Lord, You shall not murder. I pray, Lord, that our hearts are heavy as we see, Lord, a a history, a, a, a history of mankind, Lord, that is full of murder. God, I pray that you're with us, Lord, to understand why murder is so wrong, Lord, to understand what murder truly is. God, I pray that you would enlighten us this morning, that your spirit would be With us, in your son's name, amen. Once again, verse 13 says, you shall not murder. This is a a very simplistic command in in one sense. It's very short. Uh, In English, it's four words. Again, you shall not murder. But in Hebrew, it's even shorter. In fact, it's the shortest command out of all the ten. It's simply two words, translated, don't murder. That's all it is. Uh, Again, it's very simple, but extremely important. And because of this, we're going to spend some time on this command. Today, I wanted to introduce the sixth commandment with really a brief history lesson, uh, because history teaches us a lot of things, and it teaches a lot lot of things about human nature. And so I want to take us through kind of the history of Western civilization. And I've done this a number of times. You can divide Western civilization into four distinct time periods. Um, this is not an exact science, and there's disagreements on these four time periods. But most historians believe you can break up Western civilization to four distinct time periods. You have antiquity, the Middle Ages, modernity, and then post-modernity. And real briefly, antiquity... Was well, the time of the Greek and the Romans. It's the context of Scripture. We spend a lot of time talking about this time period as we go through and exposit Scripture. It's a time known for polytheism, paganism, and most importantly for Western civilization, Greek philosophy. The time that followed antiquity was a time called the, the Middle Ages. It's called the Middle Ages because it's in between, or it's in the middle of antiquity and the modern age. In this time period, period, Christianity was the dominant, dominant religion, in um, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. And what's important in this time period, there's a lot of things that are important, but one, probably the most important thing to understand for us this morning is that the highest authority in this time period was commonly believed to be God. Now, that was seen through either the Bible, the church, and or church tradition, and there was arguments through uh, what, it, what was the highest authority between those three things, but ultimately the belief was that God was the highest authority. The modern age came after this, and this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, Uh, The modern age came after this, and it started probably around the 17th century. Again, there's a lot of disagreement to this, but somewhere we switch from the Middle Ages to the modern age, and most, I think, would say the 17th century was that time period when that happened. Modernity, the modern time, in simple simple terms, was characterized by the belief that, that truth exists. Truth exists outside of man. It's out there. And it's found by a combination of empirical observations, which is just a fancy word for your five senses to observe, right? observational science, that's where kind of we get that, through your empirical observations and reason. In other words, God was no longer seen as the ultimate authority. The Bible or the church, the Bible and the church was no longer considered the final arbiter of truth. Instead, man's reason, Man's reason alone became the final authority, and man, the modern man, had a lot of hope in his reason. Modernity was marked by optimism. It was really an optimistic time period. There, There was this belief that things were getting better. And there's a couple of reasons why this time period was marked by optimism. Let me just name a few of them. Man was making incredible scientific discoveries during this time period. Technology and modern medicine was advancing, and we see that man started to even live longer during this time period. The United States was, came into existence, and uh, there was this newfound hope of, of freedom and a just society that uh, we saw through the, uh, the experience or the experiment of the United States. And finally, there was this belief in, in the modern period that reason reason and education would end all conflicts. That modern man would, would end all conflicts. They, they, they truly believed in this time period that, that education and, and reason would end all wars, would end all bloodshed. Again, this was a very optimistic time. Man thought modern medicine would solve all ailments. Education would end all wars man's reason would save us from all conflict. There was great optimism until 1914. And, And this was the year of the first great world war. World War I in the modern time period, World War I really cracked, put a crack in that optimism. And that's because in World War I, we witnessed man use his reason, he used Science, he used technology. He used his education. Man used these things to kill each other. Man used new technologies such as barbed wire, machine guns, tanks, and probably uh, most infamously poisonous gas to turn the fields of France and the grasslands of Russia into vast cemeteries. 16 million people dead. Both soldiers and civilians, 16 million people dead in World War I. That's larger than many nations. Again, modernity, this time period in Western civilization was this time of optimism, but that optimism was damaged during World War I. Now, I say damaged because even though 16 million people were killed during World War I, World War I didn't destroy the optimism of modernity. It wounded it, but it didn't destroy it. That's why World War I was called the war to end all wars. It's not just because of how big World War I was. That's partly why it was called the war to end all wars. But it was also called this because ma- modern man thought he still would overcome warfare, that he still would overcome conflicts, that he would overcome murder. He believed that World War I would be the last great war ever, the war to end all wars. There was still optimism in the modern time period, but that optimism was completely destroyed by World War II there was three times as many casualties, three times as many deaths in World War II as World War I, meaning millions and millions and millions killed. Millions of innocent civilians murdered in horrific ways. War crimes, and I try not to use this phrase, but as I've gone through this this in my head, uh, getting ready for this sermon, over and over again, I wanted to use this phrase, war crimes beyond imagination. In fact, Sarah and I had the opportunity to go to Poland, and on a a missions trip, we went out to Poland, and one of the things they did when you first got there was to get you kind of to understand the Polish culture a little bit in history, and so the very first thing they did is take our group to Auschwitz. Um, I know this is probably true for the Lores too. Is that, yeah? Uh, Auschwitz, the one of the biggest concentration camps in World War One, uh, where there was over a million civilians murdered right, in gas chambers. All right. To this day, you can go to Auschwitz and and visit this. Massive uh, piece of land that was dedicated to just murdering innocent people. And you can go into rooms where you can see all the shoes they collected from those that were victims. Just rooms of rooms full of shoes, clothing, suitcases. And there's even this room that stuck up to my mind was this room where all the reading glasses of people that they just grabbed and threw in a pile and it just became this massive pile of reading glasses all intertangled together. Human hair. The Germans would collect the human hair that they would shave off their victims' heads and make ropes and rugs out of them and just massive amount of human hair still there to this day. Again, horrific After World War II, this optimism of modernity was completely destroyed. World War II threw Western civilization into a new time period, into what has been called post-modernity. This time period that we are in right now, a post-modern time period, is really marked by cynicism, skepticism, and pessimism. It's a pessimistic time period. And I believe that is mainly because World War I and World War II taught us something, something that just couldn't be ignored, something that has been proven over and over and over and over again in the history of mankind. We have learned that man has murder in his heart. Romans 3:18 or 10 through 18 says this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of ass is under Their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And listen to this, verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Really, the 20th century has taught us Western civilization that, that verse 15, 16, and 17 are absolutely true. I mean, just think about this for one second. In the 20th century alone, four human beings, four human beings can be blamed for over 175 million deaths. Hitler, Lenin, Stalin... Mal. The death caused by these four dictators exceeds the population of the United Kingdom and France combined. Again, Romans three fifteen, man's their their feet, man's feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not. Known. And this is not just Europe or Russia or China. This is America, too. You know, every morning as a family, we get together just before we do family worship and we watch the local news. We just watch a little bit of it, kind of watch the top stories of the local news. And I do this. uh, We do this as a family. We do this for two reasons. The first one is this I, I really want to know the weather. So. Lately, it's just been hot. But But second, I want my kids to be exposed to the depravity of man. I don't want them to have any doubts that man is born depraved, spiritually dead, with murder on his heart, in desperate need of the gospel. And without fail, just about every single morning, there's a murder in Bakersfield or Kern County or if not a murder, there's a story of some recent mass shooting. We have become a culture of death. It's everywhere. It surrounds us. It consumes us. It entertains us. Do you know, according to the American Psychological Association, the average The average American child has seen more than 80,000 murders depicted on television, film, and video games before the age of 18. 80,000 murders. We have become a culture of death that entertains us. We entertain ourselves by sex, death, and murder. Now, if you would ask most people... Is murder wrong? In fact, if you would ask most people, is murder wrong throughout human history and and just about every culture, everyone, for the most part, would say, yes, murder is wrong. In fact, again, at face value, it seems like the sixth commandment is probably the least controversial commandment of them all. Most people that you talk to, Christian or not, most people just assume murder is wrong. It's a presupposition, meaning they just assume that. It's a presupposition, it's just a common sense fact to most people. Most people haven't even dug in to ask the question, well, why is murder wrong? Because it's just so assumed to most people. But I would argue this, that if the wrongness of murder is just common sense, then why has there been millions and millions and millions of murders in the 20th century alone? As Christians, it's important for us to understand why. Understand why murder is wrong. In other words, why the Sixth Commandment? Why the Sixth Commandment? Now, we're going to start today a two-part series on the Sixth Commandment. And I just want to warn you, I'm not going to be able to say everything today on the Sixth Commandment. In fact, even in the two-part series, I'm not going to be able to touch on everything. Uh, The next sermon that we'll have on this. We'll, we'll deal with more of the the heart behind murder and how Jesus takes it to a heart level. Uh, today, I want to answer three questions, and I, let me just be clear what's going on. So, it's a two-part series. Uh, every VBS, I, the, the week after VBS, we have a bunch of guests that come to our church, and I think about it every year as I'm preaching. I should have just preached a, a clear gospel message. Uh, it's kind of like, Next to Christmas and Easter, it's probably the Sunday that we have the most non-believers in our church congregation after BBS because they want to come see their kids sing, grandparents, friends, and, and so next week, we're going to have a, just a clear gospel presentation. It'll be a sermon on the gospel, and the week after that, we'll, we'll jump back into the second part of this sermon series, but today, I want to answer three questions. First question is this. Why is murder wrong from a biblical worldview? Why is murder wrong from a biblical worldview? The second question is this. Does the Sixth Commandment, what does the Sixth Commandment mean by murder? What does the Sixth Commandment mean by murder? And finally, how does this apply to us today? So let's start with that first question. Why is murder wrong from a biblical worldview? And really to answer this, we need to start where we often start, at the beginning. Again, Genesis 1.1 says this. In the beginning, God. God. In the beginning, God, I am convinced if you don't start with God, you lose the foundation to the sixth commandment. You lose the authority and the reason for the sixth commandment. Just as a side note, this is one of the main reasons modernity ended in bloodshed. This is one of the main reasons why millions and millions and millions were killed in the 20th century. When modern man rejected God as his highest authority, when modern man rejected God as his authority, he lost the foundation to the sixth commandment. He lost the ability to say, you ought not to murder. Now, don't get me wrong, there was murder before the modern time period, right? Man is sinful. What happened right after the fall, the very next chapter? Genesis 4, murder. But when a whole culture rejects God, you know what also they're rejecting? They're rejecting the authority and reason behind why one ought not to murder. And the results are millions and millions killed. God is the foundation really to all the commandments, but God is the foundation, especially to the sixth commandment. Again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, he created light. Day two, he stretched out the heavens. Day three, earth and vegetations. Day four, sun, moon, and the stars. Day five, swarms and swarms of living creatures, birds and sea creatures. And day six, land animals. And lastly, After everything else, God created man. And he gave man everything. He told man to have dominion over this whole creation. Now, the question that should pop in your mind is, why did God create man last? And I'm sure there's a number of reasons. One reason, I think, is so that man couldn't take credit of any of the other creation, right? He he was created last, so he can't say, hey, I had a part of any of it, right? But one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, was because man was the pinnacle of God's creation. Man was the crowning achievement of God's creation, meaning man was made unique. He wasn't just made last, he was made unique. We see this in Genesis 1 verse 26. It says this, then God said, let us make man. Now, this is one of the first glimpses of the Trinity we see in Scripture, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man. Everything else God has created up to this point, God created with a command, right? Let there be light. Let the waters bring forth. Let the earth bring forth. But with man, God said, let us, the Trinity, let us make man. One theologian put it this way. It should be noted that a divine counsel or deliberation preceded the creation of man. Let us make man. This, again, brings out the uniqueness of man's creation. In connection with no other creature is such a divine counsel mentioned. The creation of man was unique, in other words. Everything else was created by God's authority, by a command. Again, let there be light. Let the earth bring forth plants and animals. But with man, God said, let us make man. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made man out of his affection, not just his authority. God counseled with himself before making man. Again, he said, let us make man, and then he says this, let us make man in our image, After our likeness, let us make him, let us make man, in other words, like us, like God. God made man in his own image, meaning man is like God in certain respects. Man images God. How does man image God? Well, Genesis doesn't specifically explain exactly how man images God, and there's been a discussion on this for thousands of years, what it means that man images God. It just says that he does. Maybe it's in his reason, his intellect, his will, right, his emotion, his language, morality, that there's a sense that man has of right and wrong. Maybe it's in our relationships, but no matter how, and Again, there's debate on some of these things. No matter how, there's two things that are very clear in Scripture. First, man does image God. And second, because man images God, man is valuable. Man deserves dignity. Human life is sacred, and it should be protected. Albert Moeller writes this. In the world of the Bible... Every single human being and all life is sacred because of God. Every single human life is sacred because every single human being is made in the image of God. You see, in the Bible, uh, in the biblical world, we come to understand that every one of us has dignity, not because in ourselves we deserve dignity. But because we are made by a sovereign, all powerful, and holy God who made us in his image. In a biblical worldview, man and animals have similarities. They were even made on the same day, they were made on the sixth day, but man was made differently. Man was given the thumbprint of God, it was placed on him. Man images God. Therefore, every single human life, no matter what age, no matter what race, no matter what culture, every single human life is sacred. This is why, in a biblical worldview, murder is wrong. Yet, hunting is okay. Because animals are not made in the image of God. Just listen to Genesis 9, 6. It says this, and the context of Genesis 9, 6 is that Noah, after the flood, God comes down and says, it's okay for you to kill and eat an animal. But then he says this in verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, it was a capital offense to murder, right, deserving the death penalty. Right? Why? Well, verse 6 tells us, it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. One theologian put it this way. The reason that murder is here said to be such a horrendous crime so that it must be punished by death is that the man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, was like God and represented God. Therefore, when one kills a human being, not only does he take that person's life, but he hurts God Himself. The God who was reflected in that individual. To touch the image of God is to touch God Himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence against God Himself. In a biblical worldview, Human life has dignity and value, and human life is more valuable than animal life and plant life, or really anything else in creation, because man was made in the very image of God. Therefore, murder is wrong. Or, as Exodus 20 verse 13 says, you shall not murder. Don't murder. This brings us to the second question I want to answer today. And the second question is this. What does the Sixth Commandment mean by murder? What's the Sixth Commandment mean by murder? The ESV, the translation I like to use, uh, translates verse 13 again this way. You shall not murder. Now this is in agreement with almost all modern translations, but I'm sure many of you have this memorized differently. You you might have this memorized as, you shall not kill. The reason this is, is because you've memorized it in the King James translation. The King James uses the word kill instead of murder. Thou shall not kill. Now, before I move on, I just want to say I have a lot of respect for the King James translation. In fact, in church history, it's a giant. Right? In the English translations, it's... There's nothing that comes close to the, the impact and influence and the value that the King James has for uh, the English-speaking church. It's a giant, and it's still a great translation to this day, but I believe murder is the better word in verse 13. Right? Not, not that kill, using the word kill is wrong, but murder is a more precise word to the original meaning, to their original language. Again, remember what I just said, that this is the shortest commandment in all the Ten Commandments. It's only two Hebrew words. The first word really means don't, right? Or you shall not. It's one word in Hebrew. The second word has to do with killing, but it's a particular type of killing. Let me explain what I mean. In the Hebrew language, there's at least eight different words for killing. It's like English. We have different words for killing, kill, murder. Those are two different words for killing, right? Same with the Hebrew language. There's eight different words for killing. Because of this, we should ask, I mean, there's so many different words to pick from, we should ask why the author used a particular word, right, for killing. Why did the author use this particular word for killing in verse 13? That's a question we should ask, and let me explain why. This particular word that's used in verse 13 is used 46 times in the Old Testament, used 46 different times in the Old Testament, and it has a connotation of murder, strike down, slay, or kill unjustly. When a word's used that many times, you can kind of see how it's used and how the author uh, saw that word and the connotations behind it, and that's the, the connotation behind this word. In fact, this Hebrew word that's used in verse 13 is never used for hunting, ever. It's never used for hunting or killing an animal. There's It's only used for the killing of human beings. This Hebrew word is never used to describe killing in warfare. Different Hebrew words that are used there. It's never used this particular Hebrew word in the killing of someone in self-defense. And finally, this Hebrew word is not used in the legal sense of capital punishment. It's used one time in the Old Testament for capital punishment, and it's used there, I believe, in Numbers 35, uh, because there's a play on words that's happening. But besides that, it's never used for capital punishment. So the King James translation of this word is imprecise. It's not wrong. It's just not as precise. It's too broad of a meaning for what the Hebrew word is getting across But the sixth commandment is forbidding, is not killing, it's forbidding the unlawful killing of a human being. It's forbidding murder, and I would define murder as the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Therefore, the word murder is a more precise translation than kill. You shall not murder. Right? In other words, and I want to be clear what I'm saying here, there's some situations where the taking of human life is permitted. In fact, not just permitted, but even warranted. Let me just give you three examples, and I'm not going to expand on these examples. There's a lot of debate behind it, and I'll talk about it in a second. But let me just give you three examples. The first one is this, capital punishment. The Bible is pretty clear on this. Again, Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds human blood by other humans must his blood be shed. The New Testament, uh, Romans 13, makes it clear that the the state wields the sword. That capital punishment is under the authority of the state. So that's one example where killing would be permitted or even warranted. Another example of lawful killing is in self-defense. If someone kills an attacker in self-defense to protect oneself or one's family, this is not uh, what the Sixth Commandment is addressing A third example is killing an enemy in a just war. Now, there's a lot of arguments behind what is a just war, but let me give you just one really clear example. We see throughout the Old Testament, Israel was often commanded to go to war. They were often commanded to go to war and kill their enemies. God wasn't commanding Israel to break the Sixth Commandment because that wasn't murder. Now, with all these examples, I want to be very clear that there is a lot of debate behind them, and I would say debate that needs to happen. The ethical dilemmas behind each one of these examples gets complicated fast. And because life is so sacred, because human life is so sacred, because man is made in the image of God, every justified killing Should not be taken lightly. But the point is this the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit all killings. Instead, the Sixth Commandment is limited to the unlawful killing of of a human being, the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And this brings us to our final question this morning How does this apply to us today? As I said before, if I had to guess, I would think that most people, if you just talk to the average person, most people would say the Sixth Commandment is the the least controversial commandment in, in all of Scripture. In fact, just the phrase, you shall not murder, right, it's, it's a pretty safe phrase. There's a lot of things that you can say in Scripture <laughs> that would start a conversation that would get... Very heated quickly, but just to say you shall not murder, most people would agree with that phrase you shall not murder, or maybe the phrase you shall not intentionally kill an innocent human being. Again, most people would agree with that until you ask this question When does human life start? With that one clarification, with that one question, the sixth commandment becomes explosively controversial. The Sixth Commandment really is not controversial until it gets in the way of what man wants. You know, in Nazi Germany, it wasn't a controversial say, thing to say, murder is wrong. You shall not murder but it was extremely controversial to say a Jew is a human. In one sense, every single commandment is controversial because man wants to be his own God. He wants to determine when life starts himself, and he wants to determine when it should end. And this is because man's heart hates to be told what to do. Because man is born spiritually dead, born in depravity, because, this is so important, man desperately needs the gospel. The Bible is just extremely clear. Human life starts at conception. Now, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this because... Just about every Sanctity of Life Sunday, I do a sermon on the Sanctity of Life and I make an argument scripturally first, but even logically, biologically, scientifically, it's extremely clear that life starts at conception. But since scripture is our highest authority, we need to go to that to see where life starts. And I could just show you verse after verse after verse after verse that agrees with this, but I just want to give you two. Two verses that make it clear that life starts at uh, conception. The first one is Psalms 51, verse 5 says this: "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me." And that word "conceives" a good translation. Right? David's life right, started at conception. That's the, what's implied in this verse. Psalm 22:10 says this: "On you was I cast from my birth." And from my mother's womb, you have uh, have been my God. From my my mother's womb, you have been my God. Now, this is David writing Psalms 22, but this is a prophecy of Jesus. In other words, Jesus in his mother's womb, God has been his God. And if you go to the New Testament, it's very clear where Jesus' life started. It started at conception. We see this in both Matthew and Luke. And, again, I could keep on going. In fact, in Exodus 21, there is one of the strongest arguments in all of Scripture for life starting at conception. And so when we get there, we'll spend a lot of time on that argument. But here's what I want to do today. Instead of going through that whole entire argument, I kind of want to end the sermon today just to tell you what's going on at our church. How we are promoting life here at Country Oaks, the, the local church, Country Oaks Baptist Church here in Tachby. The, the first thing I want to just point out is this summer, and this has been going on for a couple weeks now, but it will be going on uh, throughout the summer, we are teaching our college group. It's a, this, uh, a Bible study that's called Making Life Disciples. We've kind of modified it to, to fit our church. We are teaching our college group how to come alongside someone in an unplanned pregnancy we're teaching our college kids, that age group, right? how to come alongside them with love, with hope, with kindness, with help, and most importantly, with the gospel. To come alongside those with unplanned pregnancies, how we can encourage those to choose life, to obey the sixth commandment. And... This is not an overstatement because when you look at the statistics, and I think all of us know this, when a young person in high school or in the first few years of college, when they have an unplanned pregnancy, usually the first people they, they tell is not their parents or their pastor. The first people that they tell is usually their friends. And they're going to their friends, high schoolers, or college age that age group, they're going to them for advice. Now, that's probably not the smartest place to go for advice. But we're trying to train our college group, and we want to take this curriculum and eventually take it to the high school group to help prepare them to give good advice. And even if they find themselves, unfortunately, in an unplanned pregnancy, to make good choices in that. So it's one thing that's going on this summer second thing I want to point out, which has already been seen and it's very obvious just looking at the posters behind me, is that this week, starting Monday, this week in VBS, the focus this year is going to be two things. First, the gospel. Every year, our main focus is the gospel. But second, right behind that and related to it is the sanctity of human life. This is why we have these posters up here that will be clearly put out there. But we, I want you to hear this. When I say we, Country Oaks, we are not going to shy away from the truth. These kids will come out after this week. If they make it through the whole entire week, these kids will know when life starts. They'll be exposed to the truth. And I want you to think about that for a second because I've been thinking about it and praying about it for a while now. That's 300, maybe 350, maybe up to 400 kids this week. There will be kids that will become teenagers and young adults that will find themselves in unplanned pregnancies in this group. I don't know how many, but a percentage of them will. And they will be taught the truth before they get there. And we, because we live in California, and because these kids will grow up in California, they will probably have the choice to murder, and they will have to live with those consequences of that choice. Listen, I know we know this, even though Roe versus Wade has been overturned in our country, and and that's just amazing, like, I never thought... (laughs) I mean, God is amazing. That's something that we've, I've been, I have been. mean, my whole life, it was before, well before I was born, which is the culture that we grew up in, never thought it would be overturned. But America will still be leading the way in abortion. In a lot of ways, the, the battle has, like, really just begun. Abortion will continue to flourish in states like California. And I, I know that makes many of you want to move out of the state, and I get that. Move out of the state to more conservative states. I'm I just to be clear. I don't blame you or judge you for people that have left. I don't blame or judge. But if abortion is going to remain legal here, the church is going to be needed here. We need to get the truth out about abortion. We need to get the truth out about the the dignity and sanctity of human life and when it starts. We need to get the truth out about the sixth commandment. We need the church to be here to, to boldly proclaim the gospel. Let me just ask this question. I've just been thinking about this a lot. If in America, where do you think one of the highest concentrations of lost people is found? Let me just say this. How about California? Let me just look how we vote. (laughs) In one sense, and I I mean this, in one sense, it should be exciting to live in this state. We are right on the front lines of the battle. We're proclaiming truth, like I said, to 400 kids this week that will have the option We're right on the front lines of the battle. We need high schoolers and college-age kids to to be there for those that find themselves in unplanned pregnancies to speak truth in their lives. The church needs to be here. So I just have a request for you as the church, the local church. I I just would ask this. Would would you just please pray? Pray for VBS this year because... I could already feel the spiritual warfare that's happening, right? You know what's amazing to me is this was planned well before Roe versus. Wade was overturned, or we knew it was going to be overturned, that it was going to be a sanctity of life VBS this year. I just realized this week that I'm doing the Sixth Commandment, and I was preaching it this week just before VBS, and I'm like, okay, I need to talk about BBS. We've been trying to do this Making Life Disciples for years now, and it's been this summer that it's finally worked out. Like All these things have just come together providentially. And, and, and I feel the, this week the, the, the spiritual warfare that's, that's going to be happening this week. So if you would, pray for BBS, the leaders, right, for all the children that are going to be a part of it, we, we had some crafts that we were like, hey, that's just kind of weak. Let's get rid of them. We're going to do something that's a little bit more in your face. That this is a baby. Those are going to be going home to parents. And I just have a feeling there's going to be parents that are going to be extremely upset about that. Be with us as pastors as we talk to those parents and hopefully get a chance to proclaim the gospel to them. Pray this week for BBS. Pray for the college group. And like I said, I'd like to see this curriculum go down to the high schoolers at some point i'm already in talks with zach on how we can do that and do it well right these are the groups that will first hear about an unplanned pregnancy that means these young adults these young adults need wisdom they need to be loving and they need to be courageous pray for our, our local pregnancy center it's just become a target legally in California, the state is after pregnancy centers, and so we need to pray for it, its legal protection, but also just its spiritual protection, its physical protection. And I know a lot of you, this is, is going to be a hard swill to, or pill to swallow, but pray for our state. Pray for our governor. Pray for salvation. I mean, these people that we get so frustrated with will one day have to meet God. And if they don't put their faith in Jesus, they will pay for everything that they've done. Just like all of us. It's only through grace that we are saved. We need to be praying for salvation for these people. It's so easy to just get bitter (laughs) and mad. Let me end with a quote by Albert Moeller. Abortion is an issue that must shear the nation's conscience. Abortion is an issue that's so real and relevant. Right now, right now, there are babies being terminated in wombs. Abortion is such a a crucial issue for us. However, because as Christians, we know that it is a gospel issue. And we know that right now, it is not just a baby that is being terminated not just a pregnancy that's being ended. It is a life that is known by God before God made it in the womb. It is a life that is being destroyed. And brothers and sisters, as much as that must motivate us to action as much as that must simply shear our conscience into a state state whereby we cannot be satisfied until this plague on our country is brought to an end, as much as it is all of those things, it is also that which drives us back to the cross, to the gospel, and back to the realization that the only one who can bring life out of death is the one who is the author of life from the first. Pray. Dear Lord, our God, our Father, we pray, Lord. We pray for VBS B- this year, Lord. We pray for those that it will be teaching and leading. And we pray that they would be bold with the truth, that they would be loving in their presentation, Lord. But in that love, they wouldn't shy away from what is true. God, we pray for all those young children that will be here filling up the seats or that will be hearing this truth, that, that this truth would resonate in their souls and, and wouldn't come back void, that it would stick with them, Lord, that I know, I, I pray this is not true, but... But many of them, I'm sure, will find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy, Lord. And I pray this truth will remind them just how precious human life truly is, Lord. And I also pray, Lord, that, that they see the church as a safe place, a place that they can turn to for help and love. God, I pray for our college group. I pray for our high schoolers. I pray for those that meet anyone that, that is, finds themselves in an unplanned pregnancy, that we would surround them with love and the gospel, And encourage them, encourage them not to break the sixth commandment, but to see life as a gift. God, I pray, I know as I preach this this morning, that there is a number of people that have been a part of an abortion, either had an abortion or encouraged an abortion, Lord. God, I pray for those people that that have listened to this sermon this morning. If that is true, Lord, I pray that they understand that there's grace there's grace given by you that you sent your son to to live a perfect life lord he did that he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins and we are all sinners that whoever believes in him would have eternal life and we know that's true because you raised him on the third day proving to us that you have made a path to life lord so if there's anyone that fills the guilt of of having an abortion, I pray that that could be lifted off their shoulders because they know that that it's been paid for on the cross if they believe in your son. And I pray that they would do that now. In his beautiful name, amen.